around and hear stories of this group of brothers and sisters coming alongside each other to help each other through hard times. Uh, my own nuclear family is experiencing that right now. Couldn't be more grateful for this church family. But remember when you were growing up and parents would call a family meeting? Uh, everybody all to the living room. We've got to talk to you about something. Uh, we do those in this church family too. So just a quick plug for uh, three times a year. It's at scheduled time, so don't worry. This is, the dog isn't about to be put down and mom's not pregnant again. We have one of those family meetings today, though, after church. So plan to stick around with us right here. We'll feed you, and we can do some work together as a family in Christ. Uh, and, and just so you know, at that meeting, I will be sharing a family update from my family as well. Uh, hope you'll be able to join us for that. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. In a few months, it'll be the 20-year anniversary of my high school graduation. Haven't received my invitation to the reunion yet. I'm assuming it got lost in the mail. It's coming one of these days. Uh, but thinking back, I'm reminded that 20 years ago, we lived in a world deeply infatuated with shades of gray. I'm talking ethically and morally. Right? It was very much a time, if you remember, of resistance to absolutes. Resistance to any idea of objective right and wrong, to any sort of black and white thinking regarding good and evil. And of course, what were Christians saying at the time? Uh, Christians were saying, no, there is absolute truth. Some things are black and white. Uh... Not everything is shades of gray. And Christians pointed out the logical fallacy that even when you say nothing's black and white, you just made a black and white statement. They brought up cases like Hitler and asked, well, wouldn't we all be morally obligated to oppose him if a new Hitler came along today? Arguments like that. And as it turns out, in the 20 years since then, it seems that the world has realized that Christians had a point. Maybe not about anything else, because let's be honest, we Christians have been wrong about a lot of things too. Uh, but at least on this one, we're seeing we had a point. Why? Because events keep happening that put the shades of gray approach to the test. Right? Political candidates spewing hate. Mass shootings. Police brutality caught on video. A global pandemic, an unprovoked invasion in Europe. Little by little, people have started realizing, wait, I'm not actually comfortable hanging out in the gray on this one. Some things are just wrong, period, and need to be stood up against. And so now, I, I don't know about you, but to me, it really seems that there has developed a near consensus among people of all political persuasions, religious persuasions, that a world of pure gray is not actually a utopia, but a hellscape. That a world where evildoers aren't brought to justice turns out to be our worst nightmare. Which brings us to where we are today. Uh, in some ways, it's just like the old days all over again, right? That it's considered virtuous, once again, to deal in terms of black and white, good and bad. Right? And I'm not just talking about in Christian circles now, but I'm talking everywhere. Teachers are drawing black and white lines in their classrooms again. News pundits are drawing black and white lines in their news commentary. Movies are drawing black and white lines in their messaging. So, 
for example, you've got a new show like this one, uh, Wednesday. Anybody seen it? Okay, so the Adams Family next installment. Certainly not recommending it, but it's popular. Broke the Netflix record for hours viewed in its first week. And here's the dynamic. Okay, the protagonist, Wednesday Adams, the hero, so to speak, to her, everything's black and white. It's right and wrong, right? And to her, the only option is to win, to do whatever it takes to win against what she considers evil. But she's up against, among others, the school principal, who is trying to see both sides of every issue, trying to see the good in everybody, trying to persuade others to deal in shades of gray. You see the reversal? Right. Shows and movies weren't like that 20 years ago. Right? Our world went from mocking black and white 20 years ago to championing it again today. Moral absolutes are cool again. Now, unfortunately, uh, it seems like many of the people who have regained their taste for fighting the bad guys have more or less agreed that we evangelical Christians are the bad guys. We're seen as the oppressors out to stifle individual freedom who need to be opposed at all costs. And to what extent we deserve to be the bad guys is a sermon for another day. In some ways, I think we do deserve some of that. But for today, I'm just noting the intriguing development that at least we're all agreeing again that there is a right and a wrong. And I'm speaking as though this has been some kind of well-reasoned shift, but in reality, I think it's more on a gut level for most of us that this has taken place, most of our friends and neighbors, we all sense deeply that there is a right and a wrong, that we want there to be justice, that a world in which your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, that kind of world is not only intellectually incoherent, but it's morally unsatisfactory. And most of us don't feel like we even have to be able to justify why. We just know in our souls that, for example, child predators should be punished even if they're just living their truth. We're just certain that terrorists should be punished, even if they're just living out their sincerely held religious beliefs. It's like we're all crying out now with the psalmist. How long will the wicked triumph? We might disagree on who the wicked are, but we all agree that they exist now, and we're tired of them not getting what they're due. So, much of the societal conversation then revolves around our earthly justice systems. And that's very important, right? Well, which laws are just and which laws are unjust? Who should sit on the Supreme Court? Who should not have a seat on the Supreme Court? Who should lose their jobs for their crimes and who should get a second chance? All that matters. But here's the question for today. What about on a cosmic level? Or when we extend the stakes beyond this earthly life to eternity? Like, if there's a God out there, should he be willing to forgive a mass murderer? A slaveholder, an abuser, or should all those people just get what they deserve? It's an uncomfortable question, if you're familiar at all with Christianity, because it's maybe not too much of an overstatement to say that the central message of Christianity is, and has been, that the guilty are declared not guilty. Even if you're not too familiar with Christianity, you probably heard somewhere along the way that the Christian faith offers forgiveness of sins to all, without exception, that according to the Bible, there is no sin too big for God to forgive. But in a black and white world like ours has become once again, that raises serious questions about God's justice. How can a just God forgive sins? 
that's the problem our text deals with today. After that long introduction, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 3? <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. We're spending the early months of 2023 working through several attributes of God. We're spending time on this exploration because our, we believe our concept of God can't help but impact how we navigate life in this world. And so we want to get them right. Instead of imagining a God who's just up there in just a bigger version of ourselves, projected up into the clouds, we want to think well about the God who actually is there. And so, so far in this series, we've seen a God who is incomprehensible, yet knowable. Who's holy, yet good. Today we look at his righteousness, or his justice. Righteousness or justice. Now those terms, righteousness and justice, they aren't identical but there is significant overlap between them, so I'm actually going to use them more or less interchangeably today, and here's why. Here's our passage for today, just as a, as a scan. Take a look at all the instances of righteousness or righteous or justified or justification all over the passage. And all of these, in the Greek it's written, and all of these come from the same root word. So if you're reading Greek, you wouldn't, there's no dis, uh, th those aren't different. You could just as easily as translating this righteousness, you could say justice of God has been revealed. The justice of God, this, they're justified, if there was a word righteousnessified, that could be their translation there. They're righteousified freely by his grace. It's the same root uh, in the original. So I'm going to use the two interchangeably uh, today. Together, e both kind of deal with the root idea of acting in accordance with what's right. To be righteous, to be just, is to act in accordance with what's right. It's most basic. So, so back to our original question. If Christians worship a God who just forgives people, who have done terrible things, in what sense can we ever say that such a God acts in accordance with what is right? Quick background note on this passage, then I'll read. Paul has spent most of the first two chapters of this letter to the Romans establishing that Jew or Gentile were all guilty. You may remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the passage in chapter 1 of Romans that outline the progression. Here's what happens. We fail to glorify God for who he is. And as a result of that, we exchange our worship of him for worship of created things. And so, third, we participate in unrighteousness. That's the progression in Romans 1. We're guilty. Now, in the latter part of chapter 3, he interjects with this shocking twist that despite our guilt, we can be declared not guilty. And of course, he owes us an answer to the question, well, how can God be righteous if he looks at guilty people and treats them as not guilty? See if we can pick out Paul's answer to this question as we read, starting with verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and Declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. This passage is about a verdict and a vindication. Verdict and a vindication. First, God's verdict. 
what he says about our righteousness. And then a vindication. That's what he makes known about his own righteousness. It might not be until we follow Paul's reasoning all the way through the verdict and the vindication that we're able to see what's so good about the news God has for us in Christ. Let's begin with the scandalous verdict. The verdict is the judge has made his decision. You and I, all who believe, are declared not guilty. That's the verdict in verses 21 to 24. Take a peek again. How did this happen? Well, not because we kept the law. Take a look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're not declared not guilty because we actually weren't guilty. That's not the reason. For prosecuting attorney, this is an open the briefcase, pull out exhibits A through triple Z and close the briefcase back up type of a situation in the courtroom. It's, a righteous judge has to declare us guilty. The evidence is beyond the overwhelming. Yet, look at verse 24. To our shock, as we hear the all rise in the courtroom and button up our suit jacket to brace ourselves for the inevitable, we instead hear the judge declare not guilty. That's the essential meaning of the word justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. The not guilty, in this case, uttered freely by his grace. That's why verse 22 said it's by faith in Christ. In other words, we didn't do anything that would have warranted our being declared not guilty. It's a not guilty that comes not as a result of our living not guilty lives, but rather as a result of a free gift by which he declares us who have lived guilty, not guilty. Why'd God do this? Did you catch verse 21? It says God did this because he wanted to reveal his righteousness. It implies that this is a new state of affairs. Take a look at the word now. God's righteousness has now been revealed apart from the law. Paul seems to have in mind here that back in the Old Testament, God showed that he was righteous through the giving of the law. But now, God's, he's still showing he's righteous, this side of Christ. But the new development, Paul says, is that now he's showing it by saving people from the punishment of the law that he previously gave. If that seems bizarre, Paul's like, why are you surprised by this? This was attested by the law and the prophets. You could have read about this all along. This was the plan from the beginning. We can look to these ancient texts and know that not guilty would one day in the future be the judge's verdict, Paul's saying. And we have Jewish folks right here in our own congregation who will tell you that when they started to explore for themselves, they came to discover the truth in Paul's words here. In this phrase that God had been telling his people all along that he would one day declare them not guilty by grace as a gift. Think about it. In Genesis, God responds to the first sin not by cursing humans, but by saying that Eve's seed would have crushed the accuser's head. Abraham gets justified by faith before he has a law to keep. Isaiah speaks of one who through whose wounds the people of Israel will be healed. All of these are early suggestions before Jesus ever came that God would one day declare not guilty those who place their faith in him. So Paul asserts this shouldn't be a shock. But still there's a real sense in which this verdict is it's, it's scandal. If a judge clears the guilty, he's unjust. 
And we all intuitively know, know this. I don't know if you've been following the Tyree Nichols story in Memphis. One of the worst police brutality incidents in recent memory. Five officers charged with murder. You can imagine if, if those officers were to get their day in court. And the judge watches the video, hears all the testimony, and then says, you know what? You guys did commit murder and do deserve to pay for that crime, but you know what? I'm a merciful and compassionate judge. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so you know what? I'm going to let you go free. Memphis would burn to the ground, right? Because we all feel deep within the judge who lets guilty people go unpunished is every bit as wicked as the one he's unjustly setting free. And it's not even just our human experience that speaks to this reality. God himself says it. This is the Bible, Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the just, both are detestable to the Lord. The Lord hates when the guilty are acquitted. It's his own word. You see how deep the problem goes? There seems to be both a universal human understanding and a fatal declaration in our scriptures that testify against God's righteousness. God's own word, in other words, seems to read in such a way that we're forced to call his own saving action unjust, detestable. <clears throat> and I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but sometimes I just think, but put yourself in the shoes for a moment of an outsider to Christianity. And maybe this is where some of you are this morning, right? If I'm an outsider to Christianity, I'm hearing this, right? I'm saying, you're telling me that somewhere up there is a judge who treats people like their sins never happened. He just lets wickedness go, lets the worst evil go unpunished. And you're inviting me to surrender my life to him, give him my complete trust, and you're calling this the good news? You Christians need better material for your altar calls. Can you at least see how God has opened himself up to the charge of injustice? That's why this final part is so important. The vindication, the glorious vindication. The judge's verdict, not guilty, has left us with these dark questions. But at the same cross where his justice was called into question, God vindicates his justice. At the same cross where his justice was called into question, God vindicates his justice. That's the point being made in verses 24 to 26. How does he vindicate his justice? Well, as it turns out, the just sentence was not actually excused when he forgave us. The just sentence was executed. It's just that it was executed on Christ. Unlike an unjust judge who simply looks the other way and lets sin go, God doesn't just pretend like our sins never happened. That's not what the Bible teaches. That would make him guilty of unrighteousness. No, he punishes those sins. In fact, he executes the judgment to the fullest extent, just not on us. In his great love for us, he punishes his son instead of us. In other words, our debt isn't just stamped canceled, it's stamped paid in full. Hence the word redemption here in verse 24. Right? Uh, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is marketplace language. It's the word Paul uses to speak of our debt being paid. It's paying to set another free. 
But the payment of death isn't all that took place at the cross. Take a look at verse 25. Paul describes there Jesus himself as an atoning sacrifice. And the word used there denotes a satisfaction of wrath. He's an atoning sacrifice for what we deserved. And we can think of it this way. If we had to drink the cup of God's wrath ourselves, we would never reach the bottom of it. We could never be done with it. And it's a terrible cup. If we want to know how terrible it is, we just need to look no further than to Jesus on the night before he died, sweating drops of blood and pleading, Father, take this cup from me. But the next day at the cross, in three hours, Jesus willingly drinks the cup to its dregs. He's the only one who's ever done so. People will spend eternity in hell drinking that cup and never get to the bottom. Jesus drank it for us on that cross. And so, yes, it's true in a sense that the Jewish leaders killed Jesus. It's true in a sense that the Romans killed Jesus. But ultimately, those nails and that crown of thorns were not what made the cross so excruciating. They also weren't what resulted in our not guilty verdict, not, not in themselves. There was something else taking place on that cross. Namely, the wrath of God, the just punishment for sin, was being poured out on Christ. All Jesus had ever known in heaven and on earth was complete intimacy with the Father, right? But in that moment, the Father, in some sense, turned his face from his beloved Son, as the song says. Disowned him, forsook him, as Jesus cries out. So so that all that Jesus heard when he cried out to the Father on the cross was the echo of his own voice. The Father treated him as as he would have deserved to be treated if he were a rapist, an an embezzler, a prostitute, a glutton, a Satanist, a genocidal tyrant, a racist, a pedophile. God looked ahead to all the sins that you and I would commit. He placed all those sins on his sinless son, and then he punished him for them in full. He cursed Jesus with a curse that you and I will never experience or fully understand. That's what it means that Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. Verse 25. It means that he, he turned away the Father's wrath because he took it on himself. But it wasn't just the sins of new covenant believers like you and me that the Father dealt with at Calvary. Christ bore the wrath of the Father for old covenant believers as well. I think that's what's meant here in the second half of the verse. Um, If you can switch to the next one, my clicker's not working right now. Um, Yeah, right there. In in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed, right? So so think about it with me. Adam and Eve again. When they sinned that first sin in the garden, what they deserved, think about what they deserved. What they deserved was to instantly be put to death right, and thrust swiftly into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, drinking God's wrath for all of eternity. But that's not what happened to them in the story. Why not? Well, Paul tells us why not here in verse 25. They were not punished immediately or fully because there was a sense in which God had passed over their sin. God didn't punish them immediately because he knew he would one day punish them and take the punishment for them 
one day at the cross. And it's not just Adam and Eve. We could do that same little mini exercise with all the sins of Israel. Jacob's deceiving, the golden calf incident, David's adultery, on and on. All the mercy that God showed in the Old Testament, and there's so much of it, starting with Adam and Eve. He had opened himself up in each of those moments to the charge of injustice. And in each of those cases, immediate and full punishment should have happened, but because it didn't, he could be called into question. But at the cross, even God's past actions are vindicated and shown to be righteous. His past forbearance towards sin has suggested that God might be unrighteous, but his punishment of those old sins at the cross vindicates his righteousness once and for all. What can we then say about God? Well, we've got a beautiful and concise summary of it right here in verse 26. That he could be righteous and declare righteous. Both. Two sides of a coin. In another translation, you might have heard it. It's, it he's the only judge who can be just and the justifier. He's the only judge who can remain righteous while declaring unrighteous people righteous. And there are two parts to that. He's the justifier, the one who declares righteous, because you and I, we will never be punished for our sins. He declares me righteous, and there's now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. And the relief from that is and should be no less than if we were standing on a beach looking up at a 40-foot-tall wave, tidal wave, coming that's about to annihilate not only us but every buddy in town, right? We know for certain it's just moments away. It's inevitable. Nowhere we can run. Only for a giant chasm to open up in the ground in front of us and swallow up that wave, leaving us untouched. That's how much you and I were active participants in saving ourselves. Zero. We were toast. It was over for us. We're not we're righteous not because we justified ourselves. We're righteous because he is our justifier. But at the same time as he's the justifier, he remains just. That's the other half of that phrase in verse 26. He's just because though I will never be punished for my sin, no sin goes unpunished. Though I'll never be punished for my sin, no sin goes unpunished. Not one. And it's important that it's not even one. Because right? imagine, again, a judge, different judge. He, he's had a long, upstanding career, 40 years, let's say, of impeccable service, fairness, and application of the law. But then, right before this judge retires, he hears one more case. It's a local politician who's found to have orchestrated a human trafficking ring. Well, nobody knows that this judge is politician's drinking buddy. And so the judge rules that his friend is not guilty, lets him go. What will this judge be remembered for? Will he be remembered for his 40 years of impeccable service or for his one unspeakably unjust act? We know it's the latter, right? Just the same, if there's even one chink in the armor of God's justice, the gospel's no longer good news for us. And God knows that. And that's why it's not enough for him just to be just, it's really important to him that we actually know that he's just. That he wants his people to know it. That's why, look at, look at what he says throughout this passage. That's why in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed 
in verse 25, he wants to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness. It's clear that it's not enough for God just to be just. He wants us to know that he is just. He wants to show it to us. He doesn't want us wallowing in despair, wondering if we can we really have faith that the one in whom we put our trust is righteous? No, he wants us to have confidence in it. And so when his spirit prompted, prompted Paul to pen this letter, he inspired Paul to tell of a gospel that vindicates his own righteousness. So our big idea today is this. We can trust that the God who forgives sin is nevertheless perfectly just. Those two should not go together, forgiving sin and being just. But because of what he did at the cross, we can trust that he forgives our sin and is nevertheless perfectly just. You know, this very morning, this beautiful message is being preached all over the world. That all who believe are declared not guilty. But as we've seen this morning, by itself, this isn't entirely good news. If, if God treating us like we'd never sinned means that he's like the spineless coward of a parent who won't punish his children when they do wrong, or like the wicked judge who pardons the murderer but expects everyone to applaud him for his mercy, then our impulse is right not to want a God like that. Fortunately, that's not the God who's there. The full good news of Jesus includes the truth that God did punish my sin to the fullest extent. When in the person of Jesus Christ, he willingly drank the full cup of God's wrath to its dregs for me. That's the good news. And that's why the cross matters. There's no chinks in his armor of his righteousness. He is righteous because he doesn't overlook sin forever, but he fulfills his promise to punish it in full. And he did so at Calvary when he slayed his son. If you haven't yet experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes when you place your faith in Christ, you could have your debt stamped, paid in full, today. You could have that experience of the tidal wave being swallowed up in the open earth in front of you just moments before it would have consumed you. Pull aside myself, the person who brought you here. We'd love to talk to you about how to accept that free gift, even today. If you have had your sins forgiven by God's grace through faith in Jesus, let's take this, this refresher on God's justice to the communion table in just a moment. So Dr. Lau will remind us of one more important aspect of why God's justice is such good news for us. Let me pray as we prepare our hearts to go to this table together. Oh Lord, it would be dreadful to come before a God of justice, to dare to, to speak to you, uh, to stand in your presence, uh, because we've rebelled against you. Every one of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all spit in your face and betrayed you despite the fact that you never did anything but love us perfectly. But God, thank you that we can come before you this morning not with uh, cowering trepidation, but rather with confidence that because you are merciful, yes, but also because you're just, that you've forgiven us on the basis of the fact that our sin has already been punished on that cross. And so we can stand before you clean this morning, knowing 
that we've heard that verdict, not guilty, pronounced over us, and that it will never be taken back. As we come before this table this morning and take this communion meal that reminds us of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, help it to be a rich experience, uh, one in which we can appreciate the love that you showed us and the justice that belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.